How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, thank you for the power of your word, that it is like seed that is planted in the heart that brings about a second birth. And thank you for the strength that it gives us once we've met you. You've commanded us like newborn babes to long for the pure milk of the word so that we may grow. And so we ask this morning as we open our hearts that you'd help us to hunger after the truth that is here. Father, there are many needs that are represented across this auditorium and those in other places who are listening. Thank you that you're intimately acquainted with all of our ways, that even before there was a word in our tongue, you know what we are about to say. So thank you that as you commanded us, we can bring every burden that we have, every care, and cast it upon you because you care for us. Father, many are sick in our congregation, suffering with cancer. We pray for your mercy upon them. We pray that you might sustain them. We thank you for our sister Suzanne, whom you've chosen not to do that at this point. I thank you that she'll be with you in glory before too long. Thank you for the promises of heaven to walk on streets of gold. Now, Father, as we open the word of God, may our hearts be open to its truth. We come like little children. You told us that we are to use our minds, but not to lean upon them. And so we ask the Spirit of God to be our teacher, to help us to see the truth that is found in your word. Help us to lay aside any traditions or preconceived notions and allow your word to speak for itself. Thank you for the Spirit who not only teaches, but who also brought us to you and opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel. May he do that with someone today. Please come and fill me and anoint me because without you I can't do anything but by you, all things are possible. We ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. Would you take God's word this morning and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 7. We're working our way chapter by chapter through this great book, and today we come to the seventh chapter, and the message of the morning is Israel front and center. This is such a relevant book in human history, especially as it relates to the nation of Israel in the day that we find ourselves the time frame that you see in the Revelation is being set in the very day in which we live. So many of the pieces of the puzzle are coming together. Think about it. Many people sitting in this room this morning, during your lifetime, you saw the fulfillment of a prophecy where Israel would be reborn as a nation and God would begin to gather the Jewish people from across the planet. He is doing that in our day. We saw not only the rebirth of Israel, many of you have witnessed the rise of Russia to the status of a world power, especially as it relates to the Middle East, very significant prophetically. You've seen the rise of a number of European nations as they've come together to form a sort of United Nations of Europe, United States of Europe. Uh, and indeed, that will be refined further as time goes on. 
We've seen the rise of a sodomite culture that is spreading like wildfire. These are all things that God said would happen at the end of time. It's like a big jigsaw puzzle coming together. I want to begin by reading our text of Scripture. This morning is foundational to the rest of the chapter. We're not going to go through the whole chapter, but your understanding of the first eight verses is critical, not only to chapter 7, but some of the chapters that will immediately follow. So pay close attention. Revelation 7, beginning now in verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now, most of you know that the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. The word rapture, some would say, is not in the Bible, therefore, it's not a biblical doctrine. Well, logically, you'd have to say the same of the Trinity because the Trinity, the word Trinity, is not found anywhere in the Scripture. But God affirms, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. And yet the Trinitarian nature of God is affirmed in the opening chapters of Scripture. Let us, not me, let us make man in our image. The word rapture actually is found in the Bible. It's found in the Latin Bible that was used exclusively by Christians for nearly a thousand years. And so many of our terms, as on the stained glass and the pulpit in front of you, come from the Latin scriptures, from the language itself. And so, rapto comes into English as rapture. It's harpazo in Greek. It means to be caught up. It's described in John 14. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I won't come to where you are, but you will come where I am. That's the rapture of the church, distinctly different from the second coming. It's also elucidated in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4. In a moment's time, It will be an absolutely breathtaking event. Millions of born-again Christians across the planet will be missing. We saw that door opened in heaven in Revelation 4.1. We saw the 24 elders, 24 being a representative number in the Bible of a large group of people. 24 elders representing the church, distinctly different from the people of Israel, from angels. They represent the church, the body of Christ. And so what will happen after the church is caught up is the worst time in human history we have ever seen. Jesus said if the days were not cut short, no one would survive. Those days will begin to unfold. We're not there yet, but those days will come. You say you're a pessimist. I'm not a pessimist. 
I'm an optimist because I recognize on the other side of the great tribulation comes the millennial reign of the Messiah and then indeed the eternal state that we will enjoy with our Savior. But I am a biblicist because God said what he meant, he meant what he said, and he is going to do everything recorded. And so in the fourth chapter, the rapture, and the saints of God worshiping around the throne. In Revelation 5, we saw a question that is asked, who is worthy to open the scroll? And the answer was the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so Jesus in the sixth chapter begins to unfold the scroll point by point, and God's judgments begin upon the earth. It's an incredibly difficult time to be alive, but that is only the start of what is going to happen. And we saw in Revelation 6, six sealed judgments that perfectly parallel what Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse when he brought Peter, James, John, and Andrew on that mountain, those four disciples, and they asked him about the magnificence of the temple. He said, actually, one stone won't stand upon another, and then let me give you a bigger picture, and he did. He gave a short-range prophecy that was fulfilled in 70 AD, and then he looked down the carters of time. Here on this chart, you can see how God unfolded these truths. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 4, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am Christ, I am the Messiah, and they'll mislead many. So with the church having been gone into heaven, deceivers will come, multiplicity of deceivers, and the epitome of all deceivers will be the Antichrist himself. And so the first horseman parallels this statement that Jesus makes. He comes on a white horse. Then Jesus said, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For these things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So the second seal is broken. The red horse of war comes and it's an unparalleled time in human history. Wars across the planet, they are so prevalent, rumored on everyone's lips as there is another war yet to come. And then the third seal is broken. Jesus said in various places, there will be famine. And that's what the black horse of famine brought as we discovered the hunger that was accompanied with his ride. Then the fourth horseman came on a pale or an ashen horse, which represents worldwide pestilence and death. And the fourth seal corresponds perfectly to what Jesus recorded uh, or was recorded of him in Matthew and Luke's gospel. Jesus said this, and in various places there will be earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. So Luke and Matthew underscore earthquakes, Jesus, uh, Luke, pestilence and disease as well. But they're just the birth pangs. The birth pangs haven't started yet. These are all events that take place in the first half of the tribulation. But there's an incredibly number of things, number of things that are happening in our day that allows you to recognize the pregnancy is here. But the birth pangs do not kick in until the church is gone. Then the water breaks and trouble begins. Then in relation to the fifth seal, Jesus said, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. That's almost identical to what we read in Revelation chapter 6. And then Jesus adds, but the one who endures to the end, he'll be saved. And again, when this seal is broken in the Revelation, we see their testimony is maintained. They continue on. They persevere even in the face of death and many are beheaded. 
The Bible does not teach salvation by works, and therefore it does not teach salvation by perseverance. Yet Jesus says the one who endures to the end will be saved because he knows that if you are saved, you will persevere. Perseverance is a genuine fruit of true conversion. A true child of God will never renounce Jesus Christ once the second birth has happened. But if we are saved, again, we will be willing, if necessary, to die for Christ. People say, what about Peter? That was pre-Pentecost. We're living on this side of the cross, and Peter's life was ultimately threatened. He said, I don't deserve, at least tradition says, to be crucified like my Savior, and so they crucified him upside down. Now, the phenomena in the sixth seal are not directly mentioned in terms of the moon being turned to a color like blood, where the sun is darkened and the stars, Esther, fall to the earth, and we saw what that meant and what it didn't mean. And I think Jesus wisely doesn't mention it here at this point in the Olivet Discourse because there's a number of times during the seven years where you see phenomena in the heavens. In fact, in a general way, he does refer to it in that he says there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But I don't think he wants to confuse us because we will see with the the, uh, trumpet judgments, a third of the sun being darkened and so forth, and, and the ultimate blood moon and darkening of the sun happens right before the second coming. But then that brought us to uh, the words of Jesus where he said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And of course, that brings us to where we are today. We're going to see 144,000 people who are going to be evangelists, who are going to preach the gospel, and the whole world will hear about Jesus. Now, sometimes you'll hear a Christian say, well, Jesus can't return until the Bible's fully translated, and every person on the earth has an opportunity to hear about his, his, uh, God's Son. That's not true. Nothing prophetically has ever needed to happen for the rapture of the church to happen. Now, it is true that Jesus said the gospel will be preached to the entire world before the second coming. That has to happen. And it is interesting to see the progress that is being made in Bible translation, but I don't think that's what's going to put us over the top. It's what we're going to read here in Revelation 7 and the chapters to follow, where 144,000 Jewish people will preach the gospel across the planet such that, and they must have some kind of linguistic ability that God gives them because we're told people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are saved during this time. So once again, what we will see in this chapter and the chapters to follow is it is Israel front and center. Now, if you're using your note-taking outline, I want to begin with God's deliberate pause, God's deliberate pause. Uh, Let me set the immediate context. Again, in chapters 4 and 5, we find ourselves with the raptured church. It was picturing us, because we'll be there if you're born again, worshiping the Lord God around the Father and around the Son and in the Spirit. And then in the sixth chapter, it dramatically changes like a shock to the senses where the seal judgments begin to unfold. And they're so severe that in Revelation 6.16, the people of the earth will say, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So in chapters 4 and 5, we're in heavenly places with scenes of joy. 
in chapter 6, we're brought down to earth where we see terror and judgment, scenes of judgment upon the earth. Now, please, it's important to remember the overall structure of the book of Revelation or it becomes a little bit confusing to you. So let me just review it because my desire is that by the time we're done, you'll be able to see the structure and think your way through the entire book. Um, If you remember, it begins with seven sealed scroll judgments. There's a series of 21 judgments that come on the earth, three septets, three groups of seven. And the first, of course, are the seven-sealed scroll. And we studied that in great depth. The first four seals represented the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Then we came to the fifth seal. And the fifth seal represents this huge number of saints who are martyred for their faith in Jesus. Then that's followed by the sixth seal, where there's some cosmic changes that happen in the universe. And then between the sixth and the seventh seal, and we're going to see this pattern, Same pattern with the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, that between six and seven, whether it's seals, trumpets, or bowls, there's a pause, there's an interlude, almost like God is giving us a chance to to catch our breath. And He will show us what has been taking place during the time of the seal judgments, what has been taking place during the time of the trumpet judgments. He's going to give us a different perspective. And so in chapter 7, we come to that pause between the 6th and 7th seal where you meet these 144,000 Jews and they preach the gospel and then the 7th trumpet is sounded. And so as you can see on the next diagram, you see six trumpets. The last three are called the woe trumpets. Woe, 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 woe. And they are incredibly intense. And between the 6th and 7th trumpet, you will see um, a pause once again. It's a little bit different kind of pause that we will study, but nonetheless, the structure is the same. In the seventh seal are seven trumpets. and the seventh trumpet are the seven bowl judgments. And so when the six trumpets are finished, we come to this brief pause that we're going to study today in the next few weeks the seventh chapter, then the seventh trumpet is blown, and you read a very interesting statement in Revelation 11, verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And you think the book should end there. But in one sense, chronologically, it brings us virtually to the end of the book. And you'll see it before we're done. Because in the seventh trumpet are the seven bowl judgments, and they happen very fast. They're not timed like, you know, this trumpet is going to last for five months or whatever. They boom, 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 second coming. And so it's an incredibly appropriate statement. So once again on this chart, the first six seals are over, and prior to the opening of the seventh seal, uh, which will bring the seven trumpets, there's a pause, helping us to see what God is doing upon the earth. By the way, this literary pattern is used by God's writers throughout the Bible. You come into the opening chapters of the Bible. In Genesis 1, you see the seven days of creation. The big picture is given, and then God stops in chapter 2, and He details one aspect of the creation. In Genesis 10, you see the table of nations. How do we get all the races in the world? And then God details it in the 11th chapter at the Tower of Babel. We all come from Adam. We're all related. 
But how do we have an explanation for all the languages and tribes and races? God gives us the answer in Genesis chapter 11. And so this is not an unusual pattern that we are seeing here. And what we're going to see during this time out of sorts, which is going to document what has been happening as these seal judgments has, have been unfolding, what we are going to see is God's mercy. See, God's heart is that people come to know him. The prophet Habakkuk said, in wrath, O Lord, remember your mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. And God will do that very thing because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Bible said by the prophet Ezekiel that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so notice how the chapter opens. After this, I saw... And John will use that phrase every time he opens with a new vision. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Now, to those who love to criticize and attack the Bible, they will say, there it is, four corners of the earth. Uh, By the way, a phrase used three times in the Bible, twice in the Revelation and in one Old Testament book. And they'll say, John, he's ignorant. He's one of those flat earth cosmologists. He thinks the world is flat. And so the critics will come to this text and they'll say, you poor, poor, stupid little Christians. You have an ignorant apostle who gives you a book who believes that the world is flat with four corners. Can you really believe that angel standing at the four corners of the earth? How silly. Well... To be consistent, that would be like me saying, oh, you poor, poor little pagans. You listen to your weatherman every day, and he talks about the sunset. We all know the sun doesn't set, but the earth rotates. But I wouldn't do that. That would be a cheap shot. We recognize that there are figures of speech. But the critics, because they want to attack the Bible, will often not recognize those figures of speech. So you may be asking if the verses that mention the earth's four corners do not refer to a flat earth, then what do they refer to? I'm glad you asked that question. After this, I saw the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. So this verse speaks of four angels, four corners of the earth, the four winds of the earth. In verse 1, the number 4 appears three times connecting the three groups, and not by accident. The four winds refer to the four directions of the compass, north, south, east, and west. And so we use the same expressions today. We say, well, the wind is coming today out of the west. Um, And so the repetition here of the number 4 for four angels, four corners, four winds, ties them together. And this is an idiomatic expression. And we do similar things today. Like if I call my friend in India, I might say, well, what's happening in your corner of the world today? I don't, I don't mean that he lives in a literal corner of the world. It's just an idiomatic expression. Let's go back to the drawing board. It's an idiom of sorts. Um, and so this idiom is used by John and in other places in Scripture to describe people from every section of the world or every geographical dimension of the earth itself. Uh, The phrase here in 7.1, the ends of the earth, is used some 28 times in the Scripture. 
And again, it's used to refer to the farthest reaches of the earth. And this uh, phrase, the four corners, is used uh, some three times in the scripture. For instance, in Psalm 67, 7, in reference to the ends of the earth, may God bless us still so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. Do we mean by the ends of the earth that the world has an edge to it? I hope you don't think that. Obviously, he's referring here to people who inhabit places across the globe. And so this phrase, the four corners, refers to people or geographically to the most distant places across the world. And by the way, while I'm here... I didn't tell you that the place in the Old Testament that it is used, four corners, is in Isaiah. That's the third place, twice in Revelation, once in Isaiah. Why is that significant? Well, let me read to you Isaiah 40, 22. He says, it is he, God, Yahweh, who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Now, I could have read other verses that affirm the world is round. Ever before modern science learned that the world was round, centuries before in the Old Testament, the Bible affirmed it. The popular science in Columbus's day is that the world was flat, but he was bold enough to sail, not thinking he'd fall off the edge of the world because he read the scriptures that affirmed the world was round. And Isaiah uses the same idiom concerning the four corners of the earth. But here's the point I want to make. If you want to find an excuse as to why the Bible cannot be believed, you'll find one. And some of you who are in high school, you're going to go off to the university and you are going to sit under professors who are going to try to dismantle your faith. Josh McDowell, if he's correct, he says 72% of kids from evangelical homes walk away from Christianity when they get to college. Well, they're not really walking away from Christianity because they never had it to begin with. You cannot renounce the faith and lose salvation. The Bible is clear about that. But it is a sobering thought to consider because the Bible is no longer taught People are given uh, little idioms as to what the gospel is, false idioms like invite Jesus into your heart but without any substance and no gospel at all. And so they have so-called conversions that are not conversions at all. And that's why they quote unquote walk away. But nonetheless, God's young people need to be equipped and grounded so that when they go to the university, they can stand up and give an intelligent defense for the hope that is within them. Now, let's read all of verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that the wind, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. So, in this passage, you have these four angels who are holding back something. And they're holding back the uh, devastating power of wind. Some of you weathered the last hurricane and even the one before that, and you saw the power of wind. Some of you have been through tornadoes or you've seen what uh, an earthquake can do in creating a tsunami. And so what God is speaking here of is a natural disaster that he is going to use to bring as a judgment upon the world. And he commands these angels to hold it back, to delay it. Now, you may not know it, but angels 
are God's servants. Some of you went through my course on angels years ago, and we did a full-blown study on not only God's elect angels, but also those fallen angels called demons. And angels play a wide role in the Scripture. We've already seen them in the fourth and fifth chapter as worshiping. When we go to heaven someday, you will worship alongside of angels. It will be magnificent to watch it. In fact, this morning, in this worship service, there are angels here. You say, I don't see any. They're here. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that when the church gathers, angels come. They're observing your worship today. There's a lot more people here than you actually think. There are angel people here as well. They're persons. They're not made in the Imago Dei. They're different. Humans are unique in that respect, but they have all of the marks of personality, emotion, intellect, and will. So there are worshiping angels and there are fallen angels. When we come to the ninth chapter of the Revelation, we'll see demons who will attempt to demonize the world. There are ministering spirits, the writer of the Hebrews says, sent out to render help to those who will inherit salvation. And so the same writer says that there are times when you can entertain an angel without ever even knowing it. But not only are angels worshipers, angels are witnesses. Uh, they will witness events and they will bear witness of an event. When the world was created, Job tells us the angels were there and they sang over the creation that God made. Or sometimes they give a message. They gave a message to Adam and Eve when they were posted at the entrance to the garden and forbidden to come back into the presence of God and to eat from that tree. Or the angel Gabriel, we studied in the book of Daniel, came and gave a message to uh, Daniel concerning 490 years of Israel's future. We saw the angel Gabriel uh, come to Zechariah telling him he's going to have a son who will be the forerunner of the Lord, John the Baptist. The same angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, you're, going to be, you're pregnant and you're going to be pregnant supernaturally. The Holy Spirit will overshadow your womb. It was about to happen and you're going to carry the Messiah himself. We see angels at the tomb of Christ, two of them announcing he is not here, he is risen. We see two angels at the ascension of Christ, reminding all those witnesses who are watching Christ go up into heaven that he is going to return in the exact same way. But not only, and by the way, when we come to the 14th chapter, we will see an angel, one angel, who will be... A, pro, a proclaimer of the gospel across the planet. They're worshipers, they're witnesses, but the Bible also teaches that angels are warriors. They were present at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Psalm 78, God gives us divine commentary on the plagues that came across Israel and how he used angels to execute those plagues. In 2 Samuel 24, God uses a single angel to deal with 70,000 of uh, Jewish people. And so here we have four angels holding back the judgments that are about to fall upon the earth. There is a deliberate pause for a deliberate reason. That brings us to point two in your outline. We want also to think about God's divine protection. God's divine protection. In verses two and three, the four angels are commanded to hold back the four winds of destruction. Look at verse 2, a fifth angel appears, and I saw another angel 
ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Now, we've seen that angels are ranked, they're organized, and so this fifth angel, who's carrying what the Bible calls here the seal of the living God, commands with a loud voice the other four angels to hold back their judgment. Now, we're going to study these four angels, these four angels who are here, who are told back to hold, who are commanded to hold back this judgment, they sound the first four trumpets. And if you look into chapter 8 this week, you will see the four trumpets that they sound deal with these very areas of destruction that they are to hold back so that these 144,000 are protected until they are sealed. Now, most of us know something about the seal of God in Scripture, that it is not only a mark of ownership, but it is indeed a mark of protection. For instance, in verse uh, 3, we're told, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. Those are the three areas, the land, the sea, and the trees that you're going to see in these first four trumpets. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of God in their foreheads. So a seal indicates ownership, and in this case, a specific protection. God does not want these 144,000 in any way harmed. Why? Because in God's compassion, He does not want them killed because He wants them to preach the gospel so that men and women and boys and girls can get saved. Now, think about the seal of God as it relates to your life. The New Testament teaches it is a mark of ownership. Paul wrote in him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, you've got to hear the gospel before you can be saved. There's a lot of Christians who are copped out in our day. They say, I witness with my life. If you witness only with your life, you witness only to yourself. God's called you to witness in your lifestyle, but he's also called you to witness with your words. And some of us can't remember the last time we attempted in any way, shape, or form to witness with our words. No one can get saved by looking at your life. They have to hear the message of truth, the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of your salvation. Having also believed, they listened, they believed. What happened? They were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. You hear, you believe, and you're sealed. Who, the Spirit of promise, is given as a pledge Some Bibles say a guarantee, a down payment, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. God's Spirit living in you is your mark of protection and ownership by God Almighty that the good work He began, He will complete because Ephesians 4.30 tells us we're sealed until the day of redemption. You don't get sealed and then unsealed. You don't get saved and then unsaved. When God saves you, He saves you forever and ever and ever. And so it's an unmistakable mark. And if that mark is not in your life this morning, it just means you've never been saved. Paul says this to the church at Rome. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to him. One of the three marks of assurance in the New Testament is that you are inhabited by the Spirit, so much so that He bears witness with your spirit that you've been born again, that you've become a child of God. And God becomes real in an entirely different way when that happens in the life of a believer. So Revelation 4.11 
indicates there are 144,000 who are going to receive this seal of God. I, I said Revelation 4.11. Revelation 14.1 indicates not only will they have that seal, but they're going to have the name of God on their forehead. Just like the Antichrist will put his name on the foreheads of unbelievers, these 144,000 Jewish evangelists will banish the name of God on their foreheads, and God is going to use them to proclaim the gospel. So there's a deliberate pause on God's judgment until these people are sealed. When they're sealed, they are given divine protection so that no one can harm them, so that more people can hear the gospel. Many believers are going to die during the tribulation. They're going to be beheaded. But these 144,000 will be supernaturally protected, which leads us to the third point. This chapter also speaks of God's distinct people, God's distinct people. Specifically, this group is identified in verse 4. And I heard the number of those who are sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. These 144,000, don't miss it, are specifically identified as Jews, as the sons of Israel. So at this point in human history, it's Israel front and center. Now, we studied the 70th week, 70-week prophecy of Daniel. Do you remember it? If you weren't here for that, you might want to go back and listen to the messages on Daniel 9, because if you don't understand Daniel 9, you're going to have great difficulty understanding the book of Revelation. There are 69 weeks and then a 70th week. And between the 69th and 70th week, there is a period of time which is now called by most evangelicals the church age. That's a theological catchword that we use to describe that time frame that started with Pentecost in which God is building his church. And so in that one verse of scripture, there's a space of time. And I illustrated for you many passages of scripture where both the first and second comings of Messiah are found in a single verse. Every Christmas, we will recite Isaiah that a child will be born, a son will be given. That's the first coming. That's the incarnation of Christ. But the governments of this world will rest upon his shoulders. When did that happen? Not yet, but it will happen at the second coming. And so in a single verse, there's a space of time. 69 weeks, first dealing with Israel's future. And then there's a 70th week. And we will see through the revelation, this 70th week referred to. It refers to a, not a week of days, but a week of years, to seven years to this period of time known as the Great Tribulation. And so in the 70th week, called by the prophet Jeremiah, the time of Jacob's trouble, it is Israel front and center. God is going to use the Jewish people. Now, I'm going to emphasize this this morning for a reason. Because we have crossed a line in evangelicalism here in America. For the first time in American history... There are more evangelicals who say that God has no future plan for Israel, that the church is the new Israel, that God is done with Israel. And that is very dangerous theology. I know there are some well-meaning, born-again Christians who teach it, but it is not representative of what God has unfolded for us in the Word of God. John Calvin was a believer, but I think he was messed up on some areas of his theology. And now Reformed theology, as it's often called, has become a prevalent view in the American evangelical church. 
Um, it's a word that I think has been robbed by a certain segment of the body of Christ, just like the term charismatic. Am I a charismatic Christian? Yes. I believe that every born-again child of God has a spiritual gift. But do I believe that I should roll on the floor, be slain in the spirit, foam at the mouth, charm snakes, or speak in tongues? No. And so they've robbed a word uh, from many of God's people. And so it is with Reformed theology. Do I believe in Reformed theology? Yes. But do I believe in Reformed theology the way Calvin believed in it? Absolutely not. Now understand, John Calvin, Martin Luther come out of Roman Catholicism. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church taught in their day, and they continue to teach it in this day, they've never changed their position, that the Roman Catholic Church is the chosen people of God, that the Roman Catholic Church has replaced national Israel, and they are the new Israel. Well, with all the corruption in the church, Luther and Calvin did us a service and that they brought people back to the true gospel, but they were not reformed in a whole lot of their doctrines. Many of their doctrines were still Catholic. And so they took the Catholic teaching and put a different spin on it. And they said the Roman Catholic Church is not the new Israel, but the body of Christ is all those who are born again. And so they had a very negative view towards Jewish people. And that's why I tell you sometimes I have a love-hate relationship with people like Martin Luther. Listen to what Luther said in terms of his replacement theology. In these words that I'm going to read, Hitler had read in the churches of Germany as a reason, a theological reason from a theological leader born and raised in Germany to exterminate the Jewish people. When, what then shall we Christians do, Luther wrote, with this damned, rejected race of Jews? Since they live among us and we know about their lying and blasphemy and cursing, we cannot tolerate them if we do not wish to share in their lies, curses, and blasphemy. First, their synagogues should be set on fire, and whatever does not burn up should be covered or spread over with dirt so that no one may ever be able to see a cinder or stone of it. Second, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed, for they perpetuate the same things there that they do in their synagogues. Third, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught. Fourth, their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death to teach anymore. Fifth, passport and traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews, for they have no business in the rural districts since they are not nobles, nor officials, nor merchants, nor the like. Let them stay at home to sum up, dear princes and nobles who have Jews in your domains. If this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one so that you and we may be able to be free from this insufferable, devilish burden, the Jews." That bothers me incredibly. And so when I go to Yad Vashem or the Holocaust Museum in D.C. and I see those words printed on the wall, my heart goes out to the Hebrew people. John Calvin, who also taught replacement theology, again, it is now the popular theology in America. 
And so you've got schools, and I'll document it for you, like Wheaton College, who every year sent a group of students to Bethlehem that says God is done with the Jewish people and that the church is the new Israel. Listen to what Calvin said. This was translated from French into English, and it's a reliable translation. The Jews, rotten and unbending and obstinate as they are, deserve that they be oppressed without measure or end and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. Now, please do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that every 21st century Calvinist or any pastor who espouses reformed or replacement theology has this view of the Jewish people. Many of them are as embarrassed over these statements as I am. But Luther and Calvin, who both come out of Catholicism, did not understand God's dealing with Israel, and neither do most Calvinists today. You see, Calvin thought that since the Jewish nation rejected Jesus as the Messiah, that God was done with his people Israel. And so he goes to Geneva, and he tries to set up a theocracy like in the Old Testament. And just like you would deal with heretics by killing them, he had one man burned at the stake, and in his own words, used plenty of green words that it might be painful. We are not the new Israel. Israel is Israel. The church is the church. God is not done with Israel. So when Calvin comes to Romans 9, 10, and 11, he doesn't see God choosing one nation out of all the nations of the world. He sees personal election. God choosing some to go to heaven and others to go to hell. Romans 9, and I went through six messages in it when I preached through Romans, and we went through all the Old Testament texts in their context, is not teaching personal election, it's teaching national election. That out of all the nations of the world, God chose the Jew to be his people through whom he will fulfill salvation history. Two nations are in your womb, Genesis says. And God chose one nation over another. Romans 9 deals with Israel's election. Romans 10 deals with their rejection. Why are they in unbelief? And Romans 11 deals with their future restoration. Now, I want you to see that God made a covenant with the Hebrew people when he started them that is still in place today. Hold your finger here and go to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 15. This is foundational to your understanding of Revelation. And so there are people today who say all of Revelation was fulfilled before 70 AD. Why? Because they think God is done with Israel. And then there are other people like Luther who took the historical view of Revelation, not a futuristic view, and he said it was being fulfilled during their lifetime. No, 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 no. These are things that have never happened. And if you're consistent in the way you interpret Revelation, that will be the only conclusion you can come to. Genesis chapter 15. Here, let me start with kind of a thumbnail sketch. The focus concerns the promised land, a piece of property that God is going to give to the Jewish people. Starting in verse 7, God affirms his commitment to give Abram and his people the promised land. And then in verses 18 to 21, he assures Abram, or we, I'll call him Abraham at times, all right, Stephen did that, even though his name hadn't yet been changed, so don't get mad at me, I, I, I'm in good company. Uh, and in 8 to 21, he affirms once again. 
that the Jewish people are given a particular piece of real estate. And before we're done, I think you will see that it is in the heart and mind of God Almighty to finish human history as the revelation is going to teach through this piece of real estate. Look at Genesis 15 and verse 7. And he said to him, to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. When God first calls Abram, he is 75 years old. He calls him out of Ur of Chaldee. And he says, he's already said in, in Genesis 12, 7, to your descendants, I will give this land. Years later, uh, they're on a sojourn and uh, the cowboys of Lot and the cowboys of Abram get into a little bit of a range war of sorts and they stand up on a mountain and they have to split and divide the land and God, after Lot chooses the wrong piece of property, but God has Abraham choose the right piece of property, God says, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and listen, and to your descendants forever. Forever. So we're in a big dispute every day. There's fussing and feuding. Who owns the land? God Almighty says the Jewish people own the land. Now that doesn't mean that the Jews should mistreat Arabs. And it doesn't always mean that the Jew is in the white hat and the Arab is in the black hat, so to speak. But the land belongs to the Jewish people. And just as they had compassion, just as they were shown compassion when they were alien and strangers, God says in Torah that they too are to show compassion to those who are foreigners in the land. But it is their land. God gave it to the Jewish people. And so about a decade later, God appears again to Abram here in Genesis 15, 7. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to possess it. And you cannot read Genesis without seeing that the land and the people are an essential part of the covenant that God makes with the folks called Israel. Salvation history takes place on this piece of property. The Lord Jesus dies in Israel, in Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus ascends from the Mount of olives into heaven and someday he's coming back to that very mountain in his second coming his feet will touch the mount of olives and he will split it in two salvation history from beginning to end takes place in israel now luther of course terribly messed up in interpreting revelation because he thought god was done with the jew so he said well it's all being fulfilled he thought the antichrist was alive in his day he was even a date setter of sorts Calvin, he, he, I have Calvin's commentaries. Every commentary that Calvin ever wrote, I have. And he has a commentary on every book of the Bible except one. Revelation. Because he didn't know what to do with it. He was all balled up in his view of Israel. So here's Abram, and God is promising him this land so that his descendants can enjoy it, but there's one big problem. Verses 19 to 21 of this chapter indicate there's 10 pagan nations in it. The Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Catonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, the Jebusite, the Mosquitobite. You know, they're all there. And then Abram asks an honest question in verse 8. Oh, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? 
By the way, this is not a sign of unbelief. He's asking for some assurance. In verses 1 through 6 of this chapter, he is confident that God would give him the land that he promised. The problem is, is it's overrun by pagan nations. And so he asks a very important question. Oh, God, I want to know. Tell me the specifics. And so God understands that Abram is not questioning the integrity of God's word when he asks, oh, Lord, how may I know that I may possess it? And so God answers with a visual aid. Look at verse 9. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Now, in ancient days, when you wanted to make a serious contract, far beyond just a handshake, you did what they called, you cut a covenant with another person. And so here's Abram, and he severs in half a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old goat, a three-year-old ram, and the smaller fowl he puts on either side, the two birds. And what it meant in that day is that after the pieces were laid, each party would walk between the dead animals, and you, in essence, were saying, if I do not do the promise that I am making you to you today, may God do to me what we've done to these animals. That's the seriousness of it. Verse 11, the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram uh, drove them away. Uh, he's battling these vultures all day long. No doubt a picture of what God is going to do in terms of Israel battling their opponents. Verse 12, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Have you ever had a dream where, I mean, in the dream you were literally terrified where you couldn't even move, you're just kind of frozen. You know you need to run, but you can't. Ever have a dream like that? Just me? Are you, okay, you've had one. All right. That's what Abram is having here. God said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. You talk about prophecy. You talk about the veracity of God's word. God makes this prophecy before there's any people yet called Hebrews. He hasn't had the first son yet. So God is saying, Abram, I want you to know that there's going to be a time amongst your descendants' history where for 400 years they are going to suffer under oppression. Verse 14, furthermore, I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Most of you know what he's referring to if you know your Bible. Just as God said, not by accident, for 400 years they're down in Egypt and they leave with great plunder and spoil. As for you, and I'm sure he's thinking, look, if this is the fate of my descendants, what's my fate? So God tells him, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you will be buried at a good old age. You can read Genesis 25. For details, Abram lives to 175 years of age. The Bible says he breathed his last. He died at a ripe old age, satisfied with life and gathered to his people. Verse 16, then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now the Amorite are the people who are dominating the promised land. 
And here's God because God is a patient God, not wanting for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And he waits 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 400 years for these people to repent. And if you've read your Bible, you know what an evil, wicked, beyond description some of the things that they did. So when God sends Israel in, he says, wipe them out. That was an expression of the mercy of God Almighty because of the viciousness of these people. But there came a point where God said, 400 years is up, enough is enough. And so he releases Israel and they ultimately go into the promised land. By the way, don't ever underestimate the patience of God. Some of you know people who seem so obstinate towards God, but he is so long-suffering. But neither should you overestimate his patience, because there can come a day where God's dam of mercy breaks to his wrath and it's too late forever for an individual. Now look at verse 17. God will care for Abram's descendants. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. So God puts Abraham into a deep sleep and God appears to him. And this idea of a smoking oven and a flaming torch are symbols of God elsewhere in scripture. But normally when you cut a covenant, one person would walk through affirming his commitment to the covenant. And then a second person would walk through affirming their commitment to the covenant. But Abraham is asleep. Only God walks between the pieces. Why? Because this is an unconditional covenant. It has nothing to do with Abraham. It has nothing to do with the faithfulness of the Jewish people. It has everything to do with God Almighty. Verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. It's a done deal. It's a settled matter in the mind of God. Now again, you hear all the time this fussing and feuding and fighting over the boundaries of Israel. And we will hear it again this week concerning the city of Jerusalem. But listen, God gave Jerusalem to the Hebrew people. All of that property, it is theirs. And the only reason I think that God has been compassionate towards America, because we've led the world in evil. We're leaving, leading the world in homosexuality and convincing other nations they need to follow our example. We were the first nation to legalize abortion. Roe v. Wade, prior to that year, we had 28,000 abortions. Back room, back alley abortions. The year later, we had over a million and there are 60 million Americans who are missing. Forget Americans now that other cultures have adopted it. Some will say there's somewhere between 400 and 500 million people across the planet who are missing because of abortion. Why God hasn't smushed us as a nation is beyond me, but I think the only reason he hasn't is because we are one of the few nations who have stood behind Israel. And what has fueled that in our politicians thinking? Evangelical born-again Christians. But now the evangelical church is abandoning Israel, saying we are the new Israel. And that is dangerous theology. And when America no longer stands with Israel, we are in big trouble because Genesis 12, 3 still applies today. I will bless those 
who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so today, for the most part, the Jewish people are in unbelief. Most Hebrew people on this world are secularized with the exception of a handful. But I want to tell you, God has not abandoned Israel. As he said through the prophet Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. And so think about this, especially even as it applies to us and the integrity of God's word. When Paul says at the the end of Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. How do you know? He illustrates with Israel in 9, 10, and 11. It's not some parenthesis in the book of Romans. It's a continuation of his argument. In Romans 9, God elected Israel out of all the nations of the world. In Romans 10, he deals with their current state that they are in unbelief that they have not received the Lord. They did not embrace Jesus as the Messiah. But then in Romans 11, he will look at their future restoration. Why are they in unbelief today? Listen to Romans 10 and verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And by the way, that's the same reason most Gentiles are lost. They think that their righteousness and the things they've accomplished and the good that they've done over the bad they've done somehow will secure for them a place in heaven. That was the Jew in Jesus' day. They thought they had a righteousness that would make them acceptable to God. And that's why they rejected Yeshua as the Savior. But did God abandon Israel? He elected them in the past. They're in unbelief in the present. But in the future, he will restore them. And so chapter 11 opens with these words. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. And so here we are, 2,000 years later, and we're reading a portion of Scripture that deals with Jewish people. Go back to Revelation 7 here in verse 4. We read, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, who are these 144,000? Ellen G. White, the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, said it represented their denomination. The problem is there came a time amongst Seventh-day Adventists where they far surpassed 144,000, and so they had to kind of change their terminology on it. Um, Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witness, by the way, and Seventh-day Adventists came out of the same source, the same group. Uh, They taught that only 144,000 people could ever be saved. Well, my, that was an attractive message to some, and they wanted to be in that 144,000, so they became Jehovah's Witness. There became a problem, though, with time, and that they far outgrew the 144,000. So they changed their doctrine, and they used the verse out of context in order to sustain their false teaching. They used John 10, 16. Jesus said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And so this slide illustrates how they handle the problem. They say there are two classes of saved people amongst Jehovah's Witness. There's the anointed class, the 144,000. And then there are the other sheep, and they have two different destinies. The next slide shows the anointed class is made up of the 144,000, which, by the way, they changed their doctrine. And in 1935, they said 
that number is closed off. So since 1935, you cannot be a member of 144,000. But you can be some of those other sheep. And so as the next slide shows, the other sheep refer to other Jehovah's Witnesses who unlike the 144,000 will rule and reign with Jesus in heaven, the rest of the JWs, they will live on a paradise here upon the earth. Look, whatever cult wants to use Romans 7 in verse 4 to apply to their group, they have missed the plain teaching of Scripture. It says here in Revelation 7, 4, that these people are from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Furthermore, the Apostle John spends the next four verses delineating those tribes, beginning in verse 5. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000, and so on. By the way... Verses 5 through 8, when you read it, it is an absolute death blow to that false doctrine that the ten tribes of Israel are lost. You ever hear about the lost tribes of Israel? You know where that comes from? It comes from a British teaching. There were some Christians in Britain who said that the 12 tribes of Israel migrated all the way to Great Britain and that it is white Anglo-Saxon people who are now Jewish people and by uh, extension, the Brits who came to this country, Americans as well. It is a racist, anti-Semitic doctrine. And so if you study the 12 tribes, remember they were all united at one point. They split 10 in the north, two in the south, Benjamin and Judah, the two southern tribes. The southern kingdom was named after the larger of the two, namely Judah. The 10 northern tribes were for the most part from that point on called Israel. And so um, they say that these 10 tribes that were carried away by the Assyrians were eventually lost and that they migrated to Great Britain and that the white Anglo-Saxon people of Britain and in America make up those 10 tribes. And so if you go to England today, here's a picture. This is supposedly Jacob's pillow. Remember Jacob? In Genesis chapter 28, he was so tired he laid his head on a pillow. They say this is the rock. In every king since Henry VIII, we can document, had the crown carried out, including Queen Elizabeth in 1953, the last time the stone was taken out. And they say, wear it. It's called British Israeliism. And so sometimes you will read about books, Great Britain and the United States in Prophecy, and it goes back to this time. Well, let me tell you, first of all, that the 10 tribes were never lost. Understand when the kingdom split, God had given some specific direct directions that most pious Jews would embrace. For instance, in Torah, in Genesis and Deuteronomy 12, we read this. Moses specified by God, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God has chosen from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. God said, if you're going to worship... You can't worship any old place. You got to worship in the city of Jerusalem. So when the kingdom split into 10 northern tribes, the king said, hmm, I don't want Jews to go back and support the southern kingdom. So we'll establish our own places of worship. And some of you who went with me to Israel last time, we went to that place called Dan. It was a place of idolatry. 
And so some of the more pious Jews in the ten northern tribes, not wanting to be guilty of idolatry and wanting to be faithful to God, left the ten northern tribes and came under the leadership of the southern tribes. And there are many passages that document that. But again, uh, the Assyrians carried away the ten northern tribes and they did what they typically did. They moved all the Jewish people into one city, a city called Samaria, which was the capital of Assyria. And so a lot of the Jews intermarried with the people there in Assyria. And so in Jesus' day, there's a group of people called the Samaritans. Remember that? They're half Jewish and half Gentile. But not all the Jews intermarried. And there came a time, of course, where Babylon overthrew Assyria, and Nebuchadnezzar carried the two southern tribes to Babylon, which was the old Assyrian Empire. After 70 years, just as God had prophesied, he brought them back. My point is, is that these tribes were never lost. By the way, this was a discussion that Jesus had with the woman at the well. Which mountain do we worship at? And Jesus said, listen, an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such worshipers, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And that can only happen for you to worship in spirit and truth. First, for you to be born again. And so there's no longer a required locale where you have to uniquely worship God. You can worship God anywhere. You can worship God out on your boat this afternoon. You can worship him on the golf course. You can worship him anywhere, but of course, not to the exclusion of gathering with God's people as the scriptures mandate on the first day of every week. And so it's no longer restricted to a locale under the blessings of the new covenant. But the fact that God does not lose things and that the 10 lost tribes were not lost is clear from the New Testament. Think your way through this. Jesus in Matthew 10 first sends the apostles to who? To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Oh, they're not lost according to Jesus, so I don't know why we think they're lost. And the book of James, in the opening verse, he writes to the 12 tribes of Israel. He assumes they're still in existence. Paul, before Agrippa, speaks of the 12 tribes. Anna in the temple, who we celebrate at this time of year, she's from one of the 10 northern tribes, the tribe of Asher. Peter in Acts 2 speaks of all of the house of Israel. So if the 12 tribes are lost, God doesn't know anything about it. Listen, that's rooted in an anti-Semitic spirit in its very dangerous theology. Now, I'm almost done. Stay with me. Verse 5, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. All the way through 6, 7, come down to verse 8. They were all sealed. 144,000 Jews, 12,000 special ambassadors from every tribe. You say, how are they one to Christ? We're not told. Maybe they all have a Damascus Road kind of experience. Maybe the two witnesses witnessed to him. We're not told. But all we know is that they're born again and they're sealed and they will preach the gospel to the whole world that it will be Israel front and center because God is not done with the Jew. Now, how are we going to apply this today? Let me suggest three applications in the form of a question. Number one, do you know that God loves you unconditionally in Christ? Do you know that? That he loves you unconditionally in Christ. That when you blow it as a Christian, he says, well, I don't love you anymore. 
Maybe your parents were that way, but our God is not that way. He loves you unconditionally. He made an unconditional covenant with the Jewish people. And so God said this through Moses, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. Moses affirms at the end of his life when he gathers all of Israel that God chose you not because you were better but because he set his affection upon you and he did so with an everlasting love. And my friend, that's how God saved you. You were not in the business of seeking God first. You weren't reading books and apologetics. You weren't reading the Bible all by yourself. It was not you that sought God first. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who seeks God God loved you first. He first loved you. And that's why you responded. That's why you read a book on apologetics. It's not that you were so smart and said, well, I said, if there's a God out there, I want to know this God. And God worked in your heart. God initiated with you. Your salvation from beginning to end is a work of a sovereign God. And you should find rest in that because it speaks of his unconditional, unfailing love. Second, do you know that you've been sealed by God? Again, these 144,000 are sealed with a mark of ownership and a mark in their life in terms of protection. And by the way, this is not without precedence in the scripture. God separated Noah and his family from the great flood. God separated Lot and his two daughters from the storm of terror that fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah. God protected Rahab and her household from the demise of Jericho. God protects these 144,000 and he will protect the church from the great tribulation because we've not been destined for wrath. He will protect you if you have the seal of God. Do you have the seal of God in your heart today? Does the Spirit bear witness to you that you are a born-again Christian? Third and finally, have you ever come to know the Lord? Have you ever come to know the Lord? Now, I did not ask you if you know the significance of the 140,000, 144,000, or if you know the meaning of the uh, other beasts in the book of Revelation. I'm not asking you if you can identify the ten toes in Daniel's vision and what nations they stand for or who the ten kings are in the Revelation. But I am asking you, do you know Jesus Christ? If you do not know him in a personal, life-changing way, it will be too late after the rapture. You say, well, I, I'll get it right. When all these millions of Christians are, are gone, I'll get it right. I'll call upon Yeshua and I'll get saved then. No, you won't. We will study it. God will send a strong delusion on those who did not believe and the scripture says they will believe a lie. If you will not respond in this age to a clear, cogent, Spirit-filled presentation of the gospel. The Bible is clear. You will not respond after the church is removed. You will embrace the Antichrist. My point is, if you're going to get saved, you should get saved today. Because today is the day of salvation. And if you keep putting God off, one, the rapture could happen. 
and then it will be forever too late. But if you keep putting God off and the rapture doesn't happen in your lifetime, every time you say no to God, your heart gets a little harder. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, it won't be softer and more pliable to call upon Jesus. And there will come a time when the final callus is put on your heart, just as Jesus said in John 12, they could not believe because they would not believe. There's not always hope as long as there is breath. Because a person can cross the invisible line known to God only where they will not believe because they would not believe. Today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. Holy Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you that you are a faithful God, that you never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you for all of the promises that you made to Israel. Thank you that a day will come when the Jewish people as a nation will turn and confess Jesus. They will look upon him whom they have pierced, as the prophet said, and believe on him for salvation. We await that day, but thank you that between now and that time, you have called us as your people to be faithful. Help us to be faithful in the week that is before us, to look around us and the people we will meet and see even today, and to look at them the way you see them, either forever destined to heaven or forever lost if they die without Christ. Help us to have compassion as someone had compassion on us. I pray today for someone who is here who's unsure whether or not the seal of God is in their life, whether the Spirit truly bears witness that they are a child of God. Help them in simple childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save even me. Help someone do that wherever they may be listening. And we ask it to the glory of Jesus and in his name. Amen.